Intertextual Cardboard Experience. Introduction. Hey everyone, it's just me for a quick second, so don't be afraid. Uh, it's not just me blabbing for uh, a little over an hour. There's a real and uh, really good interview coming up after this, but I just wanted to talk about a quick little change that I'm trying for this episode. Uh, so my discussion today is with Alan Emmerich, so you'll get to hear all about that very shortly. But we talked about the podcast a little bit before it started and then a little bit afterwards, and he introduced this idea of kind of having a an audio uh, cue or, or something to kind of break up the, the interview and also to potentially be able to direct a listener to a certain part either beforehand or you know after the fact like oh you know i want to be able to get to this part of the the conversation and uh, just for me to be able to kind of talk about in the episode description you know what some of the different parts are kind of chunked into so that's something i'm gonna try to integrate and i actually already recorded i did a little bit of blabbing about me uh not blabbing for this full time and, you know, one of the things that uh, Alan thought was, you know, with board games, maybe you know, dice, uh, cards or something like that. And then I was thinking that, you know, this is a, a story uh, based podcast to like a good degree, you know, getting the interviewees stories and contributing uh, some of mine as well, some anecdotes and and just discussing but a lot of the games that you know we're talking about tell stories as well, and you know part of the the podcast is mix, mixing mediums and everything like that. So I thought maybe something with books, you know, having the pages turn or or something along those lines. And I tried it. Uh, I want I want all the sounds to be you know from me, not trying to grab anything from anywhere else. And I couldn't get the, the page capture I wanted. So it's actually typing. I don't know if anybody can, you know, decode what the the letters make up. I don't know if the mechanical sound of the keyboard actually could tip anybody off to that. But I guess that's uh, for me to know and maybe you to know at some point in the future. But nonetheless, I, I really liked... The suggestion. I like trying new things. If you listen to my introductory episode, you know that I'm really willing to uh, try out different things. I want this to be, you know, an experience for uh, the listeners. I want it to be an experience for me to learn and grow as well. So whether this is something that stays around forever, maybe it evolves or changes, or maybe even the way I do it from episode to episode is inherently going to be different. I'm I'm all for it. I'm all for uh, trying new things, experimenting, and just going for it. So uh, maybe in the future it'll be like chapters or or what have you. But to keep uh, to keep it true to what this episode is about, uh, kind of the the primary game being discussed is Nemo's War, and then a lot of other great. Uh, information from Alan as well. I decided to title 
different chunks of our conversation as acts uh, to keep it, like I said, to keep it true to that source material. So if you've ever played uh, Nemo's War, you know that the game is kind of broken up into an X structure. So I thought that would be fitting here. Uh, thanks for bearing with me for a few and enjoy. Act one, setting sail. Hello and welcome to Intertextual Cardboard Experience. Uh, today's guest is Alan Emmerich in you know, both the video game and board game uh, hobbies for for many years in many different capacities and a founder of Victory Point Games. Are there mm -hmm. any other titles that that you feel like I'm missing right now? Well, I, I guess the next most important thing is I'm the founder of the game conventions, the Strategicon game conventions. It's still run in Los Angeles to this day, three times a year. They're pretty big gatherings. Wow, that that is uh, very cool. And I always, you know, for all, all the guests that I talk to, I, I'll probably talk about this a couple of times now, you know, I have different connections, whether that's just through, you know, games that uh, you design or develop. Uh, but I obviously want to do some research too, so I, I didn't know that. But I've definitely heard of the, the Strategicon, and one day when I leave the Midwest, maybe I'll get out there. Well, that was me. I was uh, actually in high school at the time when I founded those conventions. So That's super impressive. I wonder how many uh, conventions are founded by people that are still in high school. <laughs> I, you know, I I went to another game convention up in Los Angeles called GLASC, the Greater Los Angeles uh, Game Conventions. And I thought, wow, we need one of these in Orange County. And uh, I got together with my buddy, John Myers, and he and I just became the workhorses. We found a local game club. We we did everything, and we got those first OrcCon conventions Orange County conventions started and uh, the snowball went from there. Wow. Well, congratulations. That's a, that's a very impressive feat. When, when you're willfully ignorant of the impossibility of the odds, <laughs> you can, you can do just about anything. Hey, that's definitely, you know, uh, I guess a, a positive element of being younger. You know, a lot of times you don't, you don't think about everything that will, potentially go wrong or everything that that might stand in your way no you just figure out what the, where the problems are in advance as best you can and try and iron them out <laughs> that's that's just a really good uh, strategy and philosophy in general uh, so well one of the things and i'm going i'll link this in the the episode's notes is that you have a very uh, lengthy journal entry series on uh, Nemo's War. Uh, Nemo's War is going to be probably the game we talk about the most. That's what most of the, the questions about. But there are other things in here too. So the things that I have might uh, allude to the logs or, or mention them, but on the whole, you know, there's a lot there and I don't want to necessarily just like rehash something that you wrote. So the questions will be breaking from there. And I also want people to go check them out because that was a really great read for me. And when we started our uh, correspondence and you linked them, I'm like, 
Okay, this is going to be perfect. This is a great start. I tried to compose a good story well told and leave a, a note in the bottle and tossed in the ocean for players of Nemo's War so they know how the game came about. Yeah, I hope. And yeah, one of the future things, I hope people that do play the game uh, get to see it because it is you know, super well written. It is a good story. Um, and it it just kind of highlights uh, some different elements about things that people might not think about when people are creating games and kind of those concurrent stories and, and those parallels and everything like that. So, okay, right before uh, we, we got on air here, we briefly talked about your experience with 20,000 Leagues uh, Under the Sea. And do you just kind of want to talk about that for for a second and uh, some of the original uh, design and development with Chris? All right. <clears throat> Chris Taylor. He is the great man from the great man theory of history. He is a giant uh, in our hobby. He His moniker is the maker of games, and he really is that. And he's a damn fine fellow. He's, he's just as nice a person as you'd ever hope to meet on a May morning at the park. You know, he's great. And he has got, well, in those days, uh, young boys. And there was a children's library of classic books and stuff. One of them was Nemo's War. So <clears throat> he read Nemo's War and got his kids interested in it. And I think that is what inspired he were 20,000 leagues, and that's what inspired Nemo's War. Chris Taylor likes, you know, among other things, war games. And so he took that piece of classic literature and knew that Victory Point games, which I, I found in ran at the time, would be interested in something for its war game type audience, but he gave it a literature bent. And it was something... Oh, God, I'm about to say novel um, <laughs> at the time. And we sat there, played it. He showed me how to play it once. We kind of played it together solitaire. And before we left the table, we had a deal for the game, handshake. That game was under development. Boom, just like that. Just like that. You, you won't hear that story much from other publishers. <laughs> But that was true for us. <laughs> just just playing the game and being like, okay, well, like, well, we want to finish the game, but we've got a deal. All right, let's. let's I think between the handshake and the game's release was probably a month. Wow. That's, that's super fantastic. That's hilarious. So I, I think I've either mentioned on this uh, podcast intro. I talked about it with you for a second right before we got started it, or and or some other episode but a lot of the 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 genesis for this podcast idea was you know the handful of years back when I first heard about Nemo's War and really wanted to add to my gaming uh, experience so mm -hmm. and having these literary links and so I hey, have never read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea I think for the longest time, and this is kind of funny, when I was younger, I had one of those, you know, illustrated classics, and it was probably mm -hmm. like a 50-page version of 20,000 Leagues in the Sea. I'm like, oh, I've read that book before, and then I picked it up, 
Mike, yeah, okay, I've never, I've never read this book before. <laughs> Obviously, well, you learn a lot book. about fish. I'll tell you. Yeah, that, that's funny. I was wondering. That, that was like a, a a future question. Actually, didn't have it written. Was, uh, was there any any attempt to kind of like mimic the pages worth of uh, fish classification in the game? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> The uh, Jules Byrne did plenty with uh, his knowledge of ichthyoids, so <laughs> that's I'll, I'll leave that to the great author. Okay, and this okay, you know when when it comes to I mean I I like to read I like to think that I have like some knowledge when it comes to uh, you know novels and everything like that. But before I started to research on this game more in order to talk to you, I didn't even know that there that mysterious island as a crossover sequel which is a pretty cool idea in general taking a couple things that you've written crossing them over and making a sequel for both is is really neat i didn't know it was a thing so and well keep in mind <laughs> that in those days first of all uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea wasn't a novel it was a series of magazine mm -hmm. articles. Mm -hmm. yep. That's how people first discovered it. And so you had to pull them along week by week because the purpose of those articles was to sell magazines. So people would buy the next one and the next one just to learn what happens in the story. Second, there was no term science fiction in those days. <laughs> that term had not been invented. Uh, I think H.G. Wells coined the term speculative fiction. And that's what this was, speculative fiction. So it would later get harder and become hard science in the 1920s after World War I and stuff, and science fiction. So then you had rockets and Flash Gordon and stuff. Yeah, that's that's another really interesting point, too, about the, the serialization of those stories and then them being compiled into, like, a novel, whether you know, whether that was like the initial like intent, like you said, in order to sell like these stories in the magazines, newspapers from from like a week to week basis or not. But, you know, some serialized stories uh, are created with the intent of being like a whole later on, too. And I just got well, I just got done reading the first two uh, Dune novels. And the <laughs> first one was the novel. And then the second one, Messiah uh was serialized too and you can you can feel how that makes a story a little bit different as well well we were uh blessed that Twenty Thousand leagues under the seas oh that seas plural by the way not sea singular mm -hmm. Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea singular would take you about a third of the way to the moon <laughs> uh so it sees plural they they just made a mistake when they released the english language version back in the dark ages so but anyway the uh, cool thing about it being serialized is that when you play nemo's war you can think of each card as like a chapter in a serialized story that you the player are playing and so it all kind of works out you know very well stacks together very well and and within uh the act structure too so we get you get the little chapters and so oh very very cool. Okay, so 
kind of some of my thoughts uh, answered there. Do you feel like, you know, in, in development uh, for the, the original, you know, design, were there any other uh, elements of uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas mm -hmm. uh, that, that you uh, like tried to capture uh, initially? I mean, um, obviously, but. Well, I mean, okay, if you look at the original Victory Point Games edition of the board game, you'll notice that the map is Das Welt, the world. And uh, because it's a global game and you travel around the oceans of the whole world. So it was strategic in scope in that regard. Um, another thing visually was the initial deck of cards. I really wanted to create that looking out the bridge of a submarine and seeing sky, water, and land. So that, because the adventures are all sort of different that way. That, that's about it. That's, that's what I tried to catch is that you were part of this grand story and every adventure was sky, water, and land you saw. Your part in it. Yeah. Very cool. So this one's uh, a little bit lengthier uh, lead up. So kind of kind of moving from the the original design into uh, some like you know further development into uh, second edition and uh, expansions that you uh, you know designed then too. <laughs> so. You know, a, a lot of the, like, well, not new at this point, but a lot of the added uh, materials, you mm -hmm. know, in the game weren't necessarily found, you know, in in canon. You would introduce historically researched elements uh, as well. One of the things that I really like about the game is, you know, the, the subplots, uh, characters that weren't, you know, originally in the story necessarily, events that didn't happen. I just think it brings a more well-rounded group and it makes the world of the game have these different uh, fun scenes that do play out in those uh, little kind of uh, serialized uh, chapters and everything like that, uh, the dramatist personae. So how did you uh, approach those elements? Because a lot of that was you. And then what sort of balance did you try to achieve? Hmm. Well, I used to teach conceptual storytelling in college for games, right? And one thing you've noticed, 150 years after 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was written, storytelling has come a bit too, you know? So, um, and really your audience today is an audience that watches TV, you know, binge watches series of, you know, whatever the show is on Netflix these days. Who knows? So you need to have character, story, and plot. Those are the three things that I keep hammering on uh, this, my students. And the plot is not the story. The plot is how the story is revealed. Now, in a board game, it's hard to have a fixed plot line because then you don't you lose replayability you know the the plot has has got to be kind of open-ended you get things have to evolve naturally and organically 
but in a way where you can connect the storylines and say, okay, our, our protagonist did this and then this happened and now they went here and they did that. That's how the cards are put together so that the protagonist can go through adventures in varying order and with the new adventures added, <clears throat> different adventures that have verisimilitude with the time and characters that are created for Nemo's Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. There's a lot of things that I had like new questions for or new thoughts about. So let me see if I can like pick, Ask pick away. The, see if I can like uh pick those out a little bit. Uh, one of the one of the first things that that you mentioned was about you know new evolving audience like how mm -hmm. the way that people consume you know television you know so quickly or you know better better or worse all, all sorts of different uh, things along those lines i remember you know i'll go on to uh, different forums and, and talk about games that i like I, you know i think that's something i enjoy doing but i remember one of the first times that i was talking about it's it's one of those questions that pops up about which which games do you think work well with their uh, foundational uh, text or you know what stories are adapted into games well and you know I think Nemo's War is one of them that's going to get brought up a lot so I was kind of talking about my experience with both the book and the game and I said you know I you know I read you know I read Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea enjoyed it I think it's a, a very interesting story there are character elements that are unraveled in you know mysterious and and unique ways it is kind of bogged down at times by the the fish classification and, and other things in my opinion that's, uh, that's jules verne doing his <laughs> tribute to science there yeah and i mean like i said i you know i mentioned that i enjoyed it uh, but i don't didn't really feel the need to ever read it again i guess Maybe, maybe parts, maybe I will. I don't, can't speak definitively. Then I think I, you know, said something along those lines and how I enjoyed the way that these stories were introduced in, in Nemo's War and that, that I liked that story more. Same world, you know, different ideas. And someone's like, well, that's just really stupid or just some kind of like dismissive response. And I'm like, well, okay. Well, in the same way, um, a Greek or Roman audience would find the comedies and tragedies of the era appropriate to them. We need storytelling appropriate to us here in the 21st century now. Uh, sorry, I spent most of my life in the 20th century, so I'm still <laughs> updating my calendar. Um, and what Jules Verne did emphasizing science to get the speculative fiction it was based in science, and he really tried to base things in science. I used history uh, to base all the, the the new cards, the the expanded uh, storylines, because with those cards, you could run to the internet and do a search. For instance, there's uh, historical events like the Korean incident and uh, bat guano and the, the Chinese treasure fleet and all kinds of things that aren't in the Verne classic. But if you read about them on a card in Nemo's War Now, 
you're going to go, oh, wow, Easter Island. It, it was, you know, uh, terrible. And then you could do a research on Easter Island and find out, oh, my gosh, it really was. They they lost their language. You know, Rongo Rongo was disappearing. So I'm a history guy. So I'll throw a few historical breadcrumbs out there and see if anybody follows them back, you know? Oh, I like that. So, I mean, obviously, uh, you just mentioned the the, the tragedy of, of Easter Island. What's one of the historical, uh, you know, events or things that you included in the game that you feel uh, somebody did follow those breadcrumbs back, did, you know, quick Wikipedia search would be the most, I guess, uh, lightheartedly entertaining uh, search? Uh, well, the... Um... Oh, I forget what it's called now, but it was in Sydney. It was the Industrial Fair or something. Um, and uh, you can just imagine the crew sneaking into this fair and seeing printing presses and, and, you know, different kinds of farm implements and stuff and thinking about how they could use those to affect the world. You know, it's kind of that's an interesting thought. Of course, they were. They had a high notoriety by then, so they had to lay <laughs> low and go undercover. But and uh, I don't know, maybe Loch Ness would be fun. Uh, that was a fun one. That, there's there's a lot of fun in there, you know. Come on. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> I I okay. agree. I just <laughs> I but there's there's some serious stuff too. There's Madame Curie and the ship's plague and and all kinds of stuff. So things happen. And industrial espionage was becoming a thing back then. So one of the endings is sort of an industrial espionage ending. And I thought that was pretty, pretty cool, too. And I actually did a lot of research on the Kraken to get that ending right. Okay. So huh. that's, that's really cool. Well, maybe that's something that I'll probably not dive into super hard, but do a little introductory level research to, okay. to add to my knowledge. <laughs> Like I said, historical breadcrumbs are everywhere on the new the new cards that uh, were added since the original Nemo's War came out. Chris Taylor got to use the chapters as titles for the cards mm -hmm. for the original Nemo's War. But those chapters were pretty well gone by the time we said we need more material. So it's like, okay, let's fix a date. And I picked 1870 and Every event is 1870 related, give or take just a teeny bit. So, like that's interesting and neat. You know, a lot of the, you know, way that I approached, you know, the the game and trying to like enrich my experience was through, you know, reading, you know, the story, mm -hmm. but having that historical uh element as well all these events that were based on you know real events can can only add to it uh even more or well, with like the paleosaurus uh paleosaurus graveyard off of northern california that's a real thing and those waters are really treacherous and they knew that back then a lot of ships stayed away from there because of the fog and rough waters but um that's a great card they were actually building a lighthouse to help save some of those ships in 1870, and it was nearing completion. So I, I referenced that in the card. So you're going to learn some stuff, right? Yeah. Well, there's maybe things that I learned 
through playing it that I didn't even realize I learned, but I'll have to keep going. And that's the best way. <laughs> Learning without realizing you've learned. You got tricked. Thought you were playing a game. <laughs> that's the best part of education is where you can piece it together for yourself and say, huh, I wonder, and just pick up a book or hit the internet and find out. No, I love that. I mean, you know, it's just one of my, my favorite games uh, in general. And now I, I feel like going through it more and more that I have more things that I can do with it. And I, I like that a lot. Act two, taking over the helm. So I mentioned the, the journals at the the beginning, but we'll go back to them just for, for a couple things. I I thought they were an absolute uh, delight to read. I think that, you know, design logs, especially ones with the scope uh, that yours have, you know, are enjoyable. And I just said enriching, but enriching as well. Uh, games can tell stories, uh, but I think a weird and interesting things about art, uh, stories that people create, that they're all loaded with the stories of the creators. And then the consumer oftentimes doesn't get to see that. Uh, I think especially starting in you know the chapter one of your logs is, is a very powerful journey and i don't want to spoil that experience for anybody who hasn't read uh but what's uh, i guess a really fun part overall and i said fun before uh, with one of the other questions but just highlighting like a, a, a an, like a fun interesting part of that story either in the logs or out that you feel highlight some of the successes of the game's uh, development? Uh, well, it's pretty crass commercial enterprise at first. I mean, we were making a game and we were going to sell it. Um, but Chris made the game with love. Again, 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas is something he shared with his kids. And he wanted to share that through the game. And so we totally, you know, respected the designer's outlook, the designer's intent, the designer's feelings. And uh, this is why I was so moved when we did a second edition that Chris said, I don't have time for second editions, but I know you will do it right, Alan. I believe in you. I trust you. And that was a very life-changing moment for yours truly. So... <clears throat> That was pretty big. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stories. And, and again, I, I wrote them all up. But I'm, I'm happy that the book is closed. This is a good, you know, the last chapter is written. The book is closed. Uh, short of doing something crazy like a prequel game. But I would need Chris Taylor for that. Without his heart and soul and passion, uh, it just wouldn't be the right game. Yeah, that that's fair. On that note, um, you know, reading reading your notes about a prequel game that that sounds very fun. <laughs> well, yeah, I got it kind of mapped out, and written up, and how things might work, and you know, the mechanics and systems I can help polish. But like I said, Chris has got the heart and soul to flesh that out and, and there will probably be uh new characters and ways to look at the design and stuff that 
that Chris would see that I wouldn't. And and this is why I, I love to collaborate on games so much as to, like, to design them myself. I'm not a designer. I'm a developer. Not too many people want to be a developer. <laughs> That's pretty pretty thankless job, but I like it because it interests me. So Yeah. I you know, I think that's another interesting point that you brought up. Like I, you know, early, earlier in uh, the hobby too, I mean, you see designers names attached to games, obviously, like, mm-hmm. and, and developers, maybe not as much, but you know, you, you go deeper down, you look at the credits for a game and then you see, you know, the different developers, uh, mm-hmm. artists and, and the full credits, hopefully not all games have full credits. <laughs> But it sure didn't start that way. That's a more recent invention in my lifetime. Yeah. But yeah, I just just in general, I uh like have a little bit more of, of grasp on developers. Obviously, I don't because I've never done it. So I don't think it's it's one of those things in general. Like you don't you don't know it until you do it. But um no, that's something that I have enjoyed getting to know more of, but definitely would like to know more too. Very cool. Um, so, okay. Kind of the, the story of Nemo's war, if I were going to say, uh, you know, the game's history about 15 years now, right? I guess. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's a pretty long time. So having the, the Nemo's war, uh, wars ship logs trying to trying to tell that whole story uh do you feel like there are any other uh projects that you worked on or developed that you could have this extensive of a story about or is this is this the game so many of the games i've worked on have a story like that i'll tell you dawn of the zeds which is another great story-driven game. It takes the zombie apocalypse milieu and writes it at a scale that is operational in scope. It's not strategic where the whole world is going. It's not tactical where you're on a city block peering through a sniper scope. It is operational. There is a, a town outlying villages And you're responsible for that area in the zombie apocalypse. Every card is a trope, like you've seen on TV or in the movies or whatever. And you can see how the stories connect. The cards are are also built by acts and uh, with, you know, rising action and then a big dramatic ending where the zombies are going to come this close. In fact, most solitaire games you should lose things have to go right you have to make right decisions and you need a slice of luck to win you got to go in with the plan to up your odds but you should expect to lose um if you didn't there wouldn't be much of a game you lose interest in it pretty quick oh yeah i can beat that that's like solving a puzzle i did that put leave that in the box mm-hmm so Dawn of the Zeds is one. Um, oh my gosh, I'm I'm working on a, a giant war game that takes a, ten tables 
<laughs> to, to to house the map charts and, and other paraphernalia. And that's a serial. I'm still working on that. This has been, you know, about the same 15 years. So, um, yeah, a lot of games have stories like that, and they're all kind of interesting. And I guess I'll be taking those with me. But I left that one note in a bottle <laughs> for Nemo's work that, that people can go read and hopefully be entertained. Yeah, I I, I would I would assume I I don't I can't imagine anybody going to those and and not you know, having that whole range of emotions mm -hmm. that that you put into it. So I I really appreciated that. And and just kind of knowing that your other uh development work and, and projects have uh, those similar stories. And and I think that's hopefully something that people take away uh too. Okay. So you know in, in the diaries you mentioned it uh, here as well that victory point games mm -hmm. primarily uh especially early on was producing war games and then you also you know nemo's war and dawn of the zeds and others you know broke from that a bit do you uh think that any other novels well obviously we mentioned that initially Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea is not novel but uh mm -hmm. you know stories classic or not uh that you feel would work well for a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea to Nemo's War type of adaptation? Well, Dune has been adapted a few times into a game, but when you write a story of the scope of like, I don't know, Star Wars or Dune or something that's that's vast, there's, there's two games. There's the strategy game of uh, locations and conquest and production and economics and politics. And then there's the up close and personal game of characters, story or uh, characters, vehicles and items. Okay. And one thing I haven't gotten from the Dune games yet is a real feeling of characters, vehicles and items. And I'm thinking that's probably a card-driven mechanic so that you can put in the narrative text and create the stories around them. But the way the novels are written, Star Wars novels, Dune novels, Lord of the Rings, whatever, they've got the huge scope story and the small personal story. And most of the board games can look at the large scope, but they haven't managed to integrate the small scope elements of character or of uh, yeah characters vehicles and items that's that has to happen somewhere that's because <laughs> that's the modern audience they want both the grand scope or at least where their characters vehicles and items fit in the grand scope and but they want that personal you know i'm feeling the emotion i'm i'm feeling the pain uh, the you know the fatigue whatever it is of these characters which authors do but <laughs> board game makers computer game makers don't always so there's two stories there's you got to tell two tales in those the big one and the little one I like that I'm trying to you know you mentioned that I'm trying to envision what that you know more narrative uh, focused 
Dune. Dune could be. Oh, well, each uh, <laughs> house, each faction, the Bene Gesserit, the Chesserit, the Harkonnens, the uh, Tridies, the Royal House, whose name I forget now, um, the Guild, all of these factions in Dune should probably have characters, vehicles, and items that you can use to help resolve the overarching strategic story. And they can interact, they can go on small adventures to improve the situations for their things. You know, there's there's a way to play that between what I'll call a strategic cycle of the overarching storyline. And you can work in small storylines to help adjust to, to influence the overarching story. Now, that's crazy talk. <laughs> <laughs> because I've done things like that and it's a lot of work <laughs> and it's not always appreciated. In fact, it's often nitpicked in reviews and whatnot, but that doesn't mean it is less ideal for that. Oh, I, I agree. And what I, what I meant that I was trying to like imagine it, I wasn't saying that I didn't think it was possible. I was just trying to think like how I would approach it. And then, then you came back with your approach and it was, much more grand and impressive than what I was oh. thinking in my head. Thanks. This that's, that's, is a road I've been down a few times. So. <laughs> well, I like I like that road. Act three. 28 games in a year and a 10 table game. Neat. We've talked about, well, obviously Nemo's War, Dawn of the Zeds a bit. Uh, kind of going back you know, this is this is like a little Wikipedia uh, snippet that I'm grabbing from, so you can correct anything here. But you know, initially with Victory Point games, uh, a lot of that vision of like accessibility, both in production and ability to design, and the hope of allowing students, you know, you mentioned like mm -hmm. your teaching, to learn that process and and be a part of that process sooner, uh, easier, was was one of the goals. So I guess what's, you know, a, a lesser known game, and I'm, I'm sure there's a whole bunch uh, so from these kind of earlier days that aren't a couple of the more well-known ones that you wish uh, more people knew about. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I would literally have to go through my library. We did <laughs> over a hundred games. There's probably... <laughs> a uh, hundred and a score games that we did at victory point games. So uh, those were busy times. I mean, one year I released 20, wait a minute, don't tell me, 28 new products myself and my buddy Vinny who, who manufactured, but I had to do all the development work lay out all the rules and do all the graphics and everything else and get them ready to release and do the website and fill the orders. Okay, that was me. And uh, 28 in one year, I think, is a record for any game company. So <laughs> that was that was crazy. Now, we didn't have to send things overseas to be printed or anything like that. We did everything in-house. It was all under our control. So we could do that. And we did do that. That was that was crazy. So we did, we did some pretty clever little games. Uh, but... I don't know which which ones I would recommend. 
Okay. That's fair. They're, they're all my children, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you can't, okay. You can't pick a favorite of that. That is fair. Yeah. I was just, I was just curious if there was, you know, like I said, any, yeah, again, again, hundreds, it is tough. If there's anything that you're like, this could have, or should have, you know, broke out more, I guess was, that was just thought, but. I well, understand. Nemo's War was one of those games I thought should have broken out more, and ultimately and eventually it did. So, cool. Well, yeah, and you know, it's I think you know design uh, in general does offer those unique opportunities for people to go back and and find things that were uh, you know design published and everything like that to like see like wow this is a mechanic or this is a story mm -hmm. that. I really like, and it can get you know iterated upon, get those second editions and and everything like that as well. Well, I'll definitely kind of dive into that whole catalog. I'll try to I'll try to take a look at of the year of the twenty eight and see those those games too. Okay, there's a lot of them. <laughs> one one good thing about creating games with a lot of story as a, is when you get a copyright, it copyrights the way the story's told, but you can't copyright game mechanics. Mechanics, anybody can use. But the way you tell a story, you actually get some protection from your copyright. So, yay. <laughs> That's good. I mean, we, you, you, want, you want people's work to be uh, protected as much as possible. Right. Cool. Okay. You mentioned it earlier that you're, well, when we were talking about something that you could, uh, but won't write a lengthy diary about is your current uh, development project, the 10 table game. Yes. <laughs> is there anything, right. anything more that you uh, like want to talk about with that? I, I'm, I'm pretty unfamiliar. I, I kind of maybe saw a little bit about it, but <clears throat> It's called Frank Chadwick's European Theater of Operations. It is World War II in Europe. It is done at a grand scope and scale. For war gamers out there, it is a core level, weekly turned game uh, at about 50 miles a hex, uh, a space where the, where the pieces live. Um, it's just huge. And Frank Chadwick is the guy. Frank Chadwick is the guy back in like 1972 came up with the Europa series of games with Dragnach Osten and, and that series. I guess you might think of this as a second bite at the apple, but it's much more streamlined. If you're a war gamer, this is a player's game. You know, you, you just, you can break it out and just start pushing pieces around and having a good time. So but it's vast and because it's vast, there's a lot of synapses and I got to make sure all the rules connect right and help out with, you know, the, the order of battle. I have, each game piece has a story about its entry and its exits and things like that, that the players write. We know the history and because we offer scenarios, smaller games within the game, that start at different time periods, we have to know where all of those actors, all of those game units are on 
22 June 1941 when Russia is invaded or something. You know, we have to know that. And we've done a great job. Frank Chadwick is the, the order of battle guy. He knows the history. You know, I kind of help with the systems and mechanics. We've got a lead play tester uh, with Jay Johnson and a vassal guy and Ken Keller. And we have got this great team assembled. Just amazing. But that's me waxing about a war game. And I don't know how interested your listeners are in hearing about a war game. So hey. sorry, guys. Hey, I am, I'm interested. And I, okay, so I mean, you know, chalk, chalk this one up to the 10 million uh, things that, like, I wish I kind of, you know, had time to do more of. I can't, I can't call myself a, a war gamer. Mm-hmm. I definitely have some war games and or historical ones that they're actually, well, listeners can't uh, see, but in that chest behind me, it's my sure. war chest. Mm-hmm. But no, I... I am extremely like fascinated by them. I think, you know, as you said, the history is there, right? Like it exists, so you can you can go back and you can you could look at it in. I I don't even know how many different ways, how many different texts you know are able to you know report on on the the stories and and everything like that. But I think, you know, much in the similar way that like a game that is developed from the source material of like a a book or like a story you know the more work you do and i think the the scope of history is like even even more broad than that so maybe that's what's like daunting to me that you could you could never stop like reading about something so maybe maybe it's like a personal hold up but i guess long story short i'm interested well there there's good history games for what i call euro gamers out there so like uh, Julius Caesar from uh, Columbia Games up in Canada. It's a nice little wooden block game, you know, with your like hidden movement and stuff. And it's a real simple game, but boy, you get a sense of capital H history and it gives you things to look up and gives you things to be curious about. And it's, it's well done. It's, it's great. It's a step up from Stratego, but, you you will pick up capital H history and there's and want to look it up. Okay, who uh, made that game again? Did you say? Uh, Columbia Games, I believe. Okay, it's uh it's big on Board Game Geek, but Julius Caesar. Uh, it covers the Roman Civil War mm. between Gaius Julius Caesar and Pompey Magnus. Uh. It's again big scope, you know, got the whole Mediterranean, you know, big pieces. So the the beautiful thing about strategic games is you can abstract more and work less in the <laughs> rules and stuff learning it. Whereas tactical games where it gets sweaty and personal and man-to-man, you're literally counting bullets and, and bites <laughs> and things like that. And there's a lot of rules that go with more tactical, more strategic. You can make you can simplify you okay. can abstract cool well i i was able to pull this one up and i'm very intrigued i guess i guess that's going to be a downfall of having this project i'm just going to get introduced to more games that 
Well, I'm trying to recommend games that are very accessible and extremely fun and uh, high replayability. So Julius Caesar, I can totally recommend. Okay. Well, I uh, I am probably going to definitely run with that recommendation. I'm going okay. to find myself one. Act 4, 4X, and 5X. I have a uh, a two-part question. Mm -hmm. So, again, uh, just a little surface-level research. You are the person um, that is credited with coining the term uh, 4X. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, so, part one, do you feel like there are any... Uh, games, video, or board games that have uh, stuck out to you in recent years by doing something interesting or, or unique as a 4X game? This is gonna gonna hurt. <laughs> I don't play as many games because I work on so many games. Uh, I tend to not lose track of my time if i started okay look if i did what most people do and started playing games like on my computer or, uh, the weekend game club or whatever i, I wouldn't be developing games <laughs> nearly as much as i need to I, I feel i need to so i don't go stomping around tracking down 4x games i did add a fifth x and we've been discussing that and that's the experience of the game. And that's where you get down into more story-driven aspects, more characters, items, vehicles, you know, things that people can relate to in a, in a big scope game. So to me, that's the fifth X. That's the missing thing is the experience you have, either being a leader at that strategic level or manning those small groups, those small teams that you would read about in a novel that carried the day and achieved this and changed the course of, you know, so, yeah. Awesome. I, I really like that, that fifth X and I'm going to, uh, I don't know, I'll be, I'll be on the lookout for games that, that really try to introduce Create the or... experience. They're not just, you know, abstract 4X games that you really feel like you're the galactic emperor or whatever. Um, they, they put you in those shoes and you have to talk to those people and you um, have to arrange things great and small. Like uh, I'm sure the, the CCP is fighting its destiny on multiple levels and it does things at the very small scale and the very largest scale. And they have a hundred year outlook because that's just the way Chinese thinking works. You know, they've read Sun Tzu where like a lot of our guys haven't read Sun Tzu and don't know that war is based on deception and blah, 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 that Sun Tzu teaches us. So, but the Chinese know it. They're doing modern warfare in the guise of Sun Tzu's art of war. All right. This is, so part, part two to that question and and actually kind of kind of the second to last thing that i that i have queued up for us but this is reflecting on on legacy uh, a little bit so i i would feel as if you know you, 
you know, kind of chuckled when I mentioned that you were the person who was known as uh, creating the term 4X. And mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that's an, an extremely uh, impressive thing. I think that's like, like as an accomplishment, as a contribution to, you know, gaming, both video and board games is something that if uh, somebody had done, that'd be like a really, I don't know if like hang, hang your hat worthy type of, is like the phrase I'm looking for. I could but... use it. Huh? <laughs> but I guess, like I said, so the legacy element. So what ways or what things overall do you want to be most remembered uh, for in either or both the video game and board gaming hobbies? I think the more I disappear after I'm gone and new generations can pick things up, the better. They they don't need to worry about me. They don't need to worry about my contributions. My contributions are out there. They can do with them what they will. My, my story is mine. And if anybody finds it and it's inspired or interested or anything, that's fine too. But I'm, I'm not out legacy building. My legacy is the works I've done and people can study those. That's great. Awesome. Well, I mean, I, I definitely I can I can respect that sentiment I think I think people will uh find the things that you've done and and look to them for you know inspiration and everything like that too okay so well, my you know my life was standing on the shoulders of giants if, if people think that my shoulders are worth standing on then god love them you know stand away I let's, I, let's I, get it I think that I think that will happen Act five, finales D and E. My final question is always kind of this uh, broad text of note uh, question. So is there anything that you've been, uh, you said you don't really uh, play as much because you're developing so much, but playing, watching, reading, uh, listening to, or engaging with in some way that has uh, stuck out to you or that has stuck with you? <clears throat> well, I'm going to turn around and look back at my game collection. Uh, yeah, there's a lot more projects I'd like to get to and finish and <laughs> put polish on. Um, I have in mind uh, the most commercially successful game that I can think to publish but I'm not a publisher anymore. But I know that this game will hit all the right notes to as many players as possible. And all ages. And it's it'll be great. If I ever get back into that, this is the game I'm going to make. But it's a secret. Okay. But, but I know what it is. <laughs> and um, I'm going to give it to myself because I think... I'm the right person to do it. It's a great idea. And I think I'm the right person to do it. It's, it's yep. So I'm going to hold on to that. You don't get to know that. That's okay. uh, my secret. But um, yeah, I, novels, I, no, nothing. Just put a game in front of me and let me develop it. 
Okay. So that's just kind of, kind of been the life is just seeing, seeing the game. So that every, every text in your life has been that game that you're developing. You know, um, in the book biz, there are authors. And honestly, just like every backseat driver knows that they can drive, every reader knows that they can auth. You know, <laughs> they, they, they feel that they can be an author. But to me, being the editor is really cool because you get to role play that author and help them clarify and and put the right visualizations and explorations in their thing and to ask them questions about things and try and elicit refinements and improvements. Um, I like that. Not too many people would want to be an editor. Most editors have failed authors, but then so are most authors. But, you know, that's, that's the thing I like is to bring out the best in my students, the best in my game designers. One of the most prolific game designers on the planet today is a guy named Joe Miranda. Joe Miranda makes mostly war games, but he, you know, gets like six or eight published a year. All right. And has for decades. And when we were doing some Joe Miranda games at Victory Point Games, he knew that, you know, that he could unroll the paper and just go off the edges and drive here, there, and everywhere and be wackadoodle crazy with his designs. And he's a good friend. We met, you know, at lunch. And I said, you know, Joe, the best games you make are the really small, tight games, the, the little games where your big ideas are synthesized and boiled down. And it's just that great nugget that players can play with rather than exploring it all the way out to the edges of the universe. That nugget is what they want to play with that, not gold dust, gold nugget. And I looked at him and I, I remember he's a friend. I said, we get the best of Joe Miranda when we get the least of Joe Miranda, small games are where you are really great. And that was not an insult or anything. That was, just like the editor's job. And he really appreciated it. Well, a few people did. He's not the only one. He appreciated <laughs> me as a developer because I would take their ideas and I would synthesize them and present them and make an attractive package idea and marketing around it and things like that. That took their idea. Like Zulu's on the Ramparts. It's a great little solitaire game we did on the Battle of Rourke's Drift in uh, 1879. January. And um, Joe had an idea that was just done on white sheets of paper. There was no board, no prototype, no nothing. The, the cards, everything was just printed out as text on paper. And yet that was one of our most successful games. And if you ask Joe today, I think he would tell you that it's because it was so well developed. Um, and, and that's my contribution. So I made sure we had all the characters and we told all the stories and that the history was there. It's capital H history, uh, supplementing that game and, and its cards and systems and stuff. You really did learn about the situation and the, the evolving story for the battle of Rourke's drift. Yay. 
I think that's great. And I also think just knowing the the type of writing that I do write, whether it's like a, a story or some of my lengthier projects, which don't exist in the real world because they're, I think they're in need of an editor or a developer like you. Let's just put let's just put it that way. <laughs> the stuff I do is a lot more drudgery than glory, as the board the dean of board games, James F. Dunnigan, said. Rules writing is more drudgery than glory. Well, all development is, all editing <laughs> and synthesizing and boiling it down into a successful marketable product is more drudgery than glory. But you know, that's what I like doing. So well, maybe I've gotten okay at it after all these years. <laughs> yeah, just just okay after all these years. Epilogue. Explore, motive, triumph. Wow. Well, I appreciate that you are uh, uh one of one of the the people that goes through that that drudgery. I, I really appreciate you doing all of that work on and one of my favorite games i mean non-hyperbolic it's i i love it i and especially more and more well not more and more it is capped but with all the expansion uh, materials that have been added i think it's at a really good balance of you know replayability uh modularity without being you know too tricky to navigate like i think right I think it's just in a really cool spot. Thanks. Uh, Nemo's War was a great game to initially develop. When we first published it, I wish we had more time to get more things right. When we did the second edition, we took that time. And, uh, and then we took extra time to let Ian O'Toole make it look like the greatest game that ever hit the store shelves. <laughs> and boy, did he outdo himself. So everything came together. It was the stars lining up. It was, yeah, it just turned out great. And then when the more material was needed, I said, well, okay, let me think about all the material I could have. Let me scratch out all the material that's probably not a material. And this is what's left. And that's what's got published in the, you know, ultimate edition or whatever they called it. Mm -hmm. I didn't market that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. The final voyage. There yeah. we go. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I mentioned that I didn't want to talk about all the elements of uh, your your ship uh, ship logs because, well, they exist, and mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to ask questions based on them, not at them, I guess. But the yeah, the how Ian got involved in the project that that chapter uh, was that is you know wild. It is so. I mean, it's it's perfect, like you said. You know the the way that it happened, the the time that it kind of, you know, obviously took for him to create every art asset. Oh my goodness! That game. Yeah, no, Ian O'Toole is a mensch. Our hobby owes so much to him. He has done such an outstanding job making us look good and be presentable and appeal to the mass market. God bless you, Ian O'Toole. Yeah. And and I'm not just saying that I, I I love his art and graphic design. I mean everything that he does helps players, mm -hmm. and that's fantastic. But and I'm not just saying this. I think 
I think Nemo's War is is it. I, I just it is a masterpiece. <laughs> like I said, uh, he hit it out of the park, and I was too embarrassed to publish it as we had intended to. After I saw his art, I said, "We got to up our game. We got to be at least as good as Ian now." <laughs> he raised all the stakes. Oh, so, yeah, that was a read the story. It was stormy yes. weather at Victory Point Games for a while there. Yes, to any uh, anybody listening to us, definitely read it's it's okay. worth your time. Okay, speaking of time, thank you so much sure, Ryan. for yours. Okay. I I really and, enjoyed our talk, and and I'll be here. Um, remember that I used to teach game design and project management and all these things. So really I have a, a very thought out philosophy-based approach to things. And if you ever want to explore that more, that might be a subject for our next discussion. I would absolutely love that. I, okay. for sure. And honestly, I'll reach out to you. I'll ask you for some ideas because that's that's well, not something I'm versed in. The neat thing about that is a, a gamer who is an enthusiast about games is going to learn what kind of design philosophies were used, how systems and mechanics work and evolve, what kind of things you think about when you create a game, because those thoughts, those lessons turn the gamer into the designer. Just like everybody who reads a novel has a great American novel or whatever, ready to burst out of them. Once you learn those design skills, once you're aware of them even, then you can start to make your own designs. And the paper is not just something to read, the paper becomes something to write on. So. All right, well, I think every, well, when I say that this conversation was fantastic, it's fantastic because of everything. <laughs> that you said and and now i've got another one already lined up so okay well i'll be here for you ryan all right thank you and and have a wonderful day right and thank you everybody for listening yes, thank you everyone bye-bye Thank you so much for listening to Intertextual Cardboard Experience. Feel free to reach out via email, which is vodthepod at gmail.com, or check out my Instagram with the same name. There's not much on there right now, but I'm looking forward to working on the Instagram and other forms of social media and a website a little bit more in the future. Until then, keep playing, watching, reading, listening, uh, experiencing. Thank you.